changed since I moved to the city. Liddy, let them know that my roots in Mississippi. This is a Pedagogue and D Black Digital Black Lit and Composition Collaboration. It's a podcast mini-series that amplifies black graduate student pedagogies, practices, writings, and lived experiences. Every episode of this mini-series is a conversation designed to uplift and celebrate black teachers, scholars, students. Each episode features a new perspective, and each episode highlights the work of black graduate students and their family line of scholars. You can check out dblack at dblack.org. You can follow dblack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. dblack is an online and in-person network of black-identified graduate students and advanced undergraduate students in fields related to the study of language. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Let's get started. You to love it, turn it up when you in public I'm my worst critic, you don't feel it, you won't hear it. Had you waiting for a minute, just to make sure you were spinning Last song was alright, but this time coming with a vengeance In this episode, I talk with Ariana Brazier Dr. Ariana Brazier received her degree in critical and cultural studies from the University of Pittsburgh She is the Vice President of Products and Storytelling at Daymaker which helps employees connect with their community, their team, and themselves through giving and service. Ari is also the CEO and president of the 501c3 nonprofit ATL Parent Like a Boss Incorporated Parent Lab, whose mission is to enhance generational literacies through play in underserved African-American communities. Ariana, thanks so much for joining us. I want to open up space for you to talk about your research on play as method, theory, and praxis, specifically your dissertation that discusses play, Black children, and Black futures. Yeah, um, so my research is with and in a community, a Black community in Atlanta, Georgia, that is one of the poorest communities like in the it's one of the poorest communities in the poorest census tract in the state. And um, I worked within a school cluster. So out of four schools, my research was situated in three, two elementary schools and a middle school. And while my research was supposed to be focused on second through sixth grade students, um, what often happens in family settings in general, but especially like in really big extended black families is that you end up working with everyone present. And so my research incorporated people and children as young as like three and four and all the way out to their grandparents and great grandparents. It was kind of just a, whoever wants to participate, like by all means, like I'm here to listen, I'm here to play, I'm here to, to, you know, love on you and to celebrate all the love that's present. And so my research looks at the ways that this community is playing, particularly the children, as a way of telling stories about what's happening in their communities uh, from a like actual social justice standpoint, like here are some injustices that we're experiencing, but also f- probably even more so from a home place as Bell Hooks and Bettina Love would refer to this understanding that my research looks at play as a way of understanding that there is a home here where black life matters um, in all of its forms and all of its manifestations. And I believe that children are at the core of that in this community I was working in. And I think in a lot of communities, particularly like these black communities, it's the children that keep people and the community together amidst like 
very precarious conditions. The neighborhood is like rapidly gentrifying. Um, it's it does experience an incredible amount of institutional violence, which has like given way to interpersonal violence. Um, and so to see the children playing is also to know that there is life there, there is love there, that there's nurturance and support. And as these children are growing, they're keeping the community alive and they're keeping those kinship networks in place. And so that's kind of what my research highlighted. I use the lens of um, ratchet and womanism to talk about how poverty creates certain conditions that often are, they require a certain response, creative responses that we look at as ghetto or out of place, disrespectful, um, criminal even. And we sexualize it, we criminalize them, we villainize the people for responding in the ways that they do. But if you are really taking the time to understand not only the conditions, but the people, you can understand the mindset and the realities and the ways in which they learn these practices as survival practices. And so the womanism piece comes in in that way too, that it's not just something um, a child does or a mother does, this is something that a person does on behalf of their entire community. And in this community, it's particularly the women. So the ways the children are playing are being read a certain way, but a lot of their play was influenced by what the women, the mothers, the aunties, the sisters were doing to care for their communities. And so play revealed all of that. I'm trying to picture this work and how it would change or create an additional nuance to teaching writing. I'm interested in hearing more about how this work has influenced your own teaching and your own practices. So how has this impacted your pedagogical practices and how do you incorporate play-based learning and literacies in the writing classroom? So first, like, and one of the primary threads throughout my dissertation is Black child play as praxis. Hopefully in my description of my research, I did it justice in saying that I learned a lot from the ways the children are playing, the ways their communities supported play, uh, and the ways that institutions deprive them of play. I was able to see and learn um, what teaching can really look like, because I do believe that like children are the world's greatest teachers. And if we take the time to listen and learn from them, then um, we can be revolutionized in ways that cannot happen anywhere else or in any other context. And so uh, I grew up in childcare settings. My mother is a childcare professional. My first job was summer camp at the YMCA, like camp counselor. So I've always used play as my teaching method. Um, even as the arts and crafts teacher at the Y, y'all aren't feeling the craft today? Cool, let's play and see what creative energies come out of that. Like, or, you know, all of my crafts were hands-on. It was less about coloring in the lines and more about like, what can we, you know, destroy today? Um, what can we stomp to pieces? What can we, you know, rip up and, and shred? And what can we confetti? How can we use our bodies to tell a story about our experiences? And so seeing this in a new form in the community that I was working in, I was really energized to take this back into the classroom. Before I actually started my research, before I got to the pit, even I was working in this community for a couple of weeks. And that was why I had to come back was because of what I was seeing in those two or three weeks before I left for pit. So I will say that even before I formally started my research, there was like this underlying thread in my classroom teaching that um, was influenced by what I had seen 
in these children. And also what I'd seen in the children I worked with at the Y, which were also predominantly black from poor communities as well, but in Alabama, not in Atlanta. And so for my first year teaching, I was kind of feeling out what play could look like. I was teaching composition class and we used play to provoke certain dialogues. For the most part, we used play just to kind of create the space and like set the room. Um, and it got to the point in my second semester where students would come in and be like, can we play that game before we get started? Or like, they'd be very honest, like, ah, oh, I don't feel like being in class today. Can we just play today? You know, fine by me. Cool. You know, but tomorrow we're going to have to really work on these essays, you know. But it wasn't until after I started really working in the community in Atlanta that I came back and I was like, oh, this is how it takes shape. And so the next year when I was teaching children and culture, not only was there a lot more freedom because we didn't have to, you know, produce these like formal five, seven, eight page research essays. But the class was on children and culture. So we would actually play through a lot of the concepts like we would play hand clapping games so I could show the students that like childhood is actually far more complex than you might even know. And if you can recall, like if you grew up playing these hand clapping games, like there are mathematical equations in these. You know, um, these are about socialization, like learning how to play face to face with another person hand to hand. That is about socializing yourself. So we would use games not just to set the environment, you know, set the scene or whatever, um, but we would use it to actually teach certain concepts. I would bring a lot of different activities from my summer camp days primarily, but also conversations and dialogues from my actual research as well. Like, hey, this kid said this, you know, um, what do we think about this in relationship to this reading? Or we would go outside and one of my favorite lessons, um, I accidentally bought outdoor chalk. And so it was so cool to see them take notes and chalk across the sidewalk outside of our, this huge building. And we were talking about gender norms in childhood. And so like to see them taking notes about gender norms and categorizing the ways they grew up playing and how gendered it was. And then to see the community, the rest of Pitt walking by and hearing them have conversation about what they could see. It felt like everyone was in on the conversation. It felt like everyone was in the moment that we were having. And we even ended the semester like a huge play day where we combined the recitations and facilitated all kinds of outdoor games for the full hour. Anybody who walked by that wanted to play was invited. And so we were able to constantly have like these dialogues around like what play can do, but also how play builds culture. And from that culture, how, or within that culture, um, how much of it is informed by like trauma. Cause a lot of childhood does have to do with trauma regardless of your race. You know, how much of it has to do with like temporality. Childhood exists because it's only, you know, a phase of your life. And so thinking about like all of these things and how they come to life through our bodies, through our experiences, a lot of that was informed by the conversations and um, the experiences that I had in my in the research community. And so as my research grew, my connections grew and I would have some of the moms call in to my class and they would, you know, be guest speakers, that sort of thing. And out of that experience with a particular mother, I founded a nonprofit in that community as well. I co-founded it. And we use play to conduct research, to create research and to disseminate research about black families, um, family engagement, and about the importance of play to building culture and keeping culture alive in black communities. You mentioned being the co-founder of a nonprofit organization. You've worked with a lot of community organizations, the U.S. Play Coalition, National Council for Negro Women, Pittsburgh's Trying Together, and now Daymaker. Could you talk more about this community-based work and why you chose to pursue Alt-Ac? 
So I think like a lot of it also, a lot of the work that I do is also informed again, not just by my research, but the methodology in my research. So I guess you could argue, or I argue that it's a modified form of community-based participatory action research. Uh, and that basically means that I didn't have like a formal methodological uh, like system, but I did carry a notebook around. Everyone knew I was, you know, I was infamous in some ways and famous in others for taking notes of everything. And the kids and their parents would sometimes ask for my notebook and they'd be like, oh, let me take the note myself. Or the kids would like document what they were observing about me. You know, my notebook became sort of like a conduit for a different dialogue that was kind of happening on the margins. Parents would invite me to, you know, IEP meetings, daycare orientations, um, tenant rights meetings to take notes for them. And they would want notes taken in my language, you know, the way you talk, those sort of things. And the kids would be like, I don't like the way you talk. Let me write it. You know, and so a lot of um, the work I do now is also informed by the the reality that like I am uh, I'm a part of these communities, but I'm also not always in these communities. I'm not of these communities in the same way, and uh, I'm very attentive to making sure that I'm representing them in the best way possible, but also in the way they want to be represented. You know, like what does it mean for me to kind of step back and and say, like, here's the platform, you know, and I think you should be on it. You should speak, you know, for yourself. You should speak for your community. Uh, I don't need to translate. If anything, that it deteriorates, it takes away, I guess, um, from the, the message. And so a lot of the work I do in community-based organizations, uh, I try to operate with a similar mentality that, like, one, I'm in this space because someone needs to be, um, someone needs to be speaking on behalf, if not, like, not necessarily speaking on behalf, but someone needs to be like kind of making it known that there are gaps here. And so I do sometimes feel like I'm the provocateur, I guess, or, you know, kind of like the rebel rouser in many ways, because I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not going to work. You know, or like, I should not be the only one here, you know, or I can't speak for the communities that you're trying to touch. Maybe you should invite people from that community, you know. Um, so in many of the organizations I'm in, I do feel like that's the primary role I play is like, where are the gaps? who should be standing in them, it, and it's often not me. And so with the National Council of Negro Women, I've been a part of the organization since I was in college. The mission and the legacy are invaluable, and I'm really grateful for the leadership development I have gained in that space. And I'm also in charge of like youth leadership and development. And so I'm constantly like, you know, at this point I'm 27, I can't speak for college students, can't speak for high school students. You know, how do we bring them back into this space? How do we make sure that they're centered in this space uh, with trying together in the U.S. Play Coalition, both great organizations producing some important research about the importance of play, but where are the Black voices? Where are the Latinx voices? You know, where are the, you know, Asian voices in this conversation on play? Because play looks differently from culture to culture. It's understood and it's facilitated differently. It's, it's facilitated for different purposes, you know? And so like, how deep really are we getting into this conversation around play if we're also not talking about play and culture, if we're not talking about play and race? Um, and so again, like in these spaces, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm a gatekeeper. My goal is to like open the door so more people can come in and have these conversations or just tear down the whole wall so it can be a public one. And so I feel like in academia, what happens though is, it would be very easy for me to produce this research from this community and get all the accolades 
and be the person that everyone goes to for all the answers. And it just stay in academia because I'm the person, you know, and I stay in academia and it never actually like come back to the communities that it came from. And that's a huge problem to me. There, if, I think it might be bell hooks is like, if there's no like application, you know, in this praxis, then like your theory is empty. Like it's serving no purpose. And I do think like, it's very easy to get in academia to be, you know, the gatekeeper and keep the gate closed so that my theory is the one that's circulating. So I'm the referenceable person, you know, I'm the, the resource. And that was one of my motivations for stepping outside of academia is like, how applicable can my research really be? How far can it reach? Um, and what does it mean to take this research that academia, I won't say like invited because there are a lot of challenges but that academia helped make possible for me because of the people I was connected to, the resources I had access to, the language that I was able to um, access. And how can I you know, be back in the community making sure that it doesn't stop with me, it doesn't stop in the dissertation or in a book that nobody in this community will ever pick up. And so Daymaker kind of felt like a, a niche application. So Daymaker, what we do is we create giving campaigns for companies, like for-profit companies. And basically what we do is we create like these wish lists and these experiences that these companies can their employees can like purchase and we make sure that they meet the kids at these nonprofits that we've partnered with across the country. And so we're kind of like standing in the little gap between companies and nonprofits. And there's like kids at these nonprofits who have particular interests. And my job as vice president of products and storytelling is to make sure that the products on the wish list are reflective of their interests, culture, um, that they're accessible, they're educational, but that they're also play-based, they're joy-producing, because that's something that's completely overlooked is like the importance of joy. Um, and so again, it felt like a niche application to my research. I get to tell stories because I'm also the media person. So how do I tell stories that are accurate, responsive, reflective, but are also educational, particularly for the company employees who are reading it? It's not enough to know that there are poor children. We need to know why poverty exists. You know, it's not enough to know that this child is interested in STEM. We need to know why STEM isn't accessible to these children, you know, and we need to know how STEM already is being practiced by these children. You know, like what lessons are they already picking up from A, B, C, and D that they've been doing for the last 10 years in their homes, you know? And how can we make sure that the gifts they're getting aren't just, you know, because they're black, they're getting black dolls. How do we make sure that they're getting, you know, books and other play materials that are reflective of their realities too? Like um, representation isn't just about having someone who looks like you. It's also about having people who live like you. It's about having families that look like yours. It's about, you know, telling stories that sound like yours, whether that be like in the dialect or in the actual like plot. And so how do I make sure that their wish lists are reflective of these things? And so it felt like a different kind of application of play. And I felt like I was going to be able to reach a far broader audience than I would if I had stayed in academia. I'll have access to a different, an entirely different skill set. So should I come back to academia? I've had this otherworldly experience. I have these otherworldly connections. And so when I force the door open in academia, it could be like, I got all these new people behind me. Like, now what? How can the academy support Black teachers, scholars, and students? Um, I think three things come to mind and in no particular order. The first one is they can just tell the truth. 
just tell the truth. Um, I'm really thinking about right now the Princeton and um, is it UPenn and the bones of the moved children that were stolen from the scene basically and the violence and, and how both schools are like, oh, we don't have any record of that. It just, just tell the truth. You know, at the, that is, at the very minimum, like tell the truth because when you tell the truth, then we can talk about accountability. I don't know if accountability is possible, but we can talk about it, you know? Um, so that's the first thing. I think like a lot of black scholars, a lot of black teachers, just students, like they're just constantly gaslighted in academia. Um, and there's like all of this hardcore evidence that this is like the history of black people in this space. And gaslighting is the way in which we keep black people out of it, you know, or, or we just keep the same few circling in it. And we never actually move up or bring more people in. And that's for fear, for all sorts of things. Um, you don't want to put another black person in that position. So just telling the truth and with truth comes accountability. The second thing is just like respect black joy when it exists in the academy. I think that is like another major thread in my dissertation, if not like the thread is like black joy shows up in these spaces where people feel value, you know? And our joy is just criminalized in every aspect possible. And in academia, it's not looked at as learning. But we know like as just human experience that we learn best when it's joyful, when it makes sense to us, when it matters to us, when it's like relevant to us as humans. And so black joy is not legible to all people, especially academia, academics, like white academics who run the space. So like when they walk in and they see black joy happening and they see black joy in the moment, it's like, there's no learning here, but that is the learning. It's the only learning that matters, you know? So like respect black joy, respect when it shows up and, and understand that you don't have to be part of it for it to matter, for it to, you know, have an impact. And then the third thing is understanding that black creativity, black the black experience is not a monolith. And just because you have like black professors, black scholars of a certain caliber or of a certain research background or whatever, you know, have certain credentials in the space that that does not get to represent all black people. Academia just period, you know, um, relies on the prestige elitism so much of academia is about who didn't get in you know and we know that historically that means us that means black people and if we're really going to be representative of like black communities I don't even know if that's possible academia being representative but if we are really going to be honest and open to black black life, black possibilities, black theories, and we need to be open to the people who are creating them, which are the people on the ground, the people in these poor black communities, the people organizing, putting their lives on the line, people in prison. You know, these are where the theories are coming from, but these are also not the people who are allowed in the door. But because we have like these people with credentials who like, you know, who work their way up, there's no, I'm not denying that, their role in that space, but they're studying these other people on the ground. We think that that's sufficient in academia, as long as there's a book about it, as long as there's a theory, instead of going to the source. And so if we are gonna you know, support black scholars, we need to really be open to what a scholar looks like, who, where, where they're located, you know, and, and what experience they come out of. Do you need a PhD to be a scholar? You know? Um, so those are like the three things that come to mind in, in ways that we can be more supportive, more open to like, not just like black, scholars but like black scholarly theory is making sure that academia like academics 
and academia are telling the truth, making sure that they're respecting Black joy, even if you don't get to participate in it, it's not for you, you know, and understanding that that is learning. And then understanding that like scholarship is coming from the ground up, the scholarship that matters, the scholarship that's going to change the whole world. It's, it's on the ground. It's and it's circulating there. And it's not enough for someone to go and, and excerpt it or abstract it from that community. We need to bring the community in or we need to go to them and be accountable when we get there. Thanks, Ariana. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers, for tuning into this Pedagog and D Black collaboration. You to love it, turn it up when you in public. I'm my worst critic. You don't feel it, you won't hear. Had you waiting for a minute just to make sure you were spinning. Last song was I, but this time coming with a vengeance. That's my good friend Raph Peters, aka Kazo. He's a Houston-based rapper, and that's his single Liddy. You can check him out on YouTube, YouTube.com/backslash Kazo Music. That's K-Z-O-E Music. <laughs>